through the storm, he is Lord of all. It almost seems like this last week that the country has just kind of held our collective breath as we've watched to see what would happen with Hurricane Ian and the devastation that would follow. And so, you know, everyone, a storm of this size, this magnitude, this amount of water and everything, you just can't help but really look at it. And then, you know, the way the storm chasers kind of cover it, that adds its own level of excitement, doesn't it? I mean, inevitably, there's some guy out there with a poncho holding on to a telephone pole, and it's kind of windy and rainy and telling us how dangerous and bad everything is. And so you almost can't help but look away in a situation like that. And then if you're like me, if you have friends and family down there who are affected by the storm adversely, well, then you look with a whole different set of eyes, don't you? And you almost wish, I wish there was something I could do. I wish I could help this out in some way. I wish I could put the storm back into the ocean or there's something. But the storm's just not containable. It's just too big. You can't control a storm like this. And we all know that. We all know that a storm that size, you can't control it. You can't contain it. It's going to do what it's going to do. It's going to turn where it turns. And there's nothing you can do to control that, to contain that. And so we recognize that there are things like that in life. Certain things in life you just can't control, you can't contain as much as you'd like to. And perhaps that's why as humans, we do like to control what we can control, don't we? Those situations and those circumstances that we can control, that we can contain, well, we like to. And sometimes it's not just circumstances and situations, sometimes it's people, isn't it? Sometimes we like to put our systems in place and our traditions in place and our norms and here's how things ought to be and if we can just get you to fit into our box, then we'll all be happy. And as we go through Mark's gospel, we'll see that there are so many people trying to fit Jesus into this box just to contain him. If you'll just fit according to our systems, to our traditions, to all of our religious cues that we've got for you, then we'll be all right with you. But the Pharisees are not all right. We've already, we've already seen this, haven't we? I mean, we're, we're just now entering chapter three of Mark's gospel. In chapter one, they're mainly in the background, just kind of watching from a distance, seeing what Jesus is doing. And then in chapter two, last week, we saw that they're questioning Jesus in their hearts, and then they're questioning Jesus' disciples, and then they're questioning Jesus himself. Why? Because they can't contain him. Yet Jesus can't be contained. And you know what? He empowers his people in such a way that we can't be contained either. I want you to see it this morning. Let's go ahead and jump in. It's Mark's gospel, chapter three. We'll begin in verses one through 20. Mark writes, again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired 
And they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangeries, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. You know, it's almost like Jesus loved needling the Pharisees, isn't it? I mean, it almost seems that way. I mean, you go back into chapter two and just remember last week, right? He's, he's forgiving sins. He's partying with tax collectors and sinners. His disciples aren't fasting when everyone else's are fasting. They're breaking all kinds of Sabbath laws. It's almost like he really loves needling the Pharisees. And now here, as we begin chapter three, it's almost like he takes it up a notch because he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as you go through the gospels, it's really interesting how many times that Jesus heals on the Sabbath and how many times he does miracles on the Sabbath. Why? Because he's forcing the issue. Do you just love your religious traditions? Do you just love your religious country club that you have? Or do you really love God and long for the Messiah? See, Jesus, he's forcing the Pharisees to reconcile this. Do you really love God and long for the Messiah, or do you simply love your religious traditions? And again, so he's forcing the question. And the Pharisees, they're there, and they're watching. That word watching could actually be translated slyly looking out of the corner of their eye. Right? You can picture it, can't you? These guys and their long beards and their fancy robes, just like, glaring at Jesus. I mean, if looks could kill, they're ready, right? I mean, they're just ready to accuse him. They're ready to pounce. They're ready for anything. And Jesus, well, he obliges, doesn't he? Because he goes in on the Sabbath, and of course, there's a man with a withered hand, and of course, Jesus notices him. And Jesus, he doesn't just heal at a distance. You know, he has the power to do that. He could just do it kind of slyly, maybe undercover kind of thing, heal this guy. He could have waited till the whole synagogue service was over and then met with the guy. He could have done a bunch of things, but he doesn't. What does he do? He calls them center stage. Come forward. I want everybody to see this. You know, these guys were just looking so slyly and trying to catch me. Oh, everyone's going to see this. There's going to be no, no doubt. Come on forward. And so this man with the withered hand curled up. It's of no use. And Jesus just to kind of stick it in a little more, before he heals, he asks the Pharisees, hey, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? And they're stuck, aren't they? I mean, they can't say it's lawful to do good because then they're endorsing everything that Jesus is about to do. They can't say it's lawful to do harm because that really undercuts their whole message. And then Jesus, he, just, he just sticks it in a little further. Is it lawful to save life or to kill on the Sabbath? And they're silent and they're seething because they're so mad. Jesus, why are you blowing up all of our religious norms, right? You're, he's uncontainable. He's not going to be contained by them. He's not going to fit nicely into their, just, their little religious boxes. He's forcing the issue and he's forcing them to make a decision on who he is. But they've already decided, haven't they? They've already decided they want nothing to do with this guy, that he's gone, that he's got to go because he's, he's disrupting everything. You get an idea of just how upset they are 
because it says that they plotted with the Herodians. It's almost comical, okay, because the Herodians, they're the Hellenistic Jews, okay? These are the Jews who support Herod and they want all of the Roman and Greek customs to come into Israel. You know what Pharisees don't want? All the Roman and Greek customs to come into Israel. But in this case, hey, we'd rather have Roman and Greek customs than Jesus. So we'll make a little alliance here. We can deal with you guys later. I mean, it's some strange bedfellows going on here, but this is what's happening. Because they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And we love it, don't we? I mean, really? Like, don't we love him just like sticking it to them? Just, man, you expose these dirty, rotten scoundrels for who they are. Jesus, you tell them what's up. This is great. But if that's the way we think, we actually miss the heart of Jesus. Because it says that he looked at them with anger. But the deal is that word anger is temporary intense. So there's this momentary feeling of anger. But then it says that he was grieved at their hardness of hearts. And that word grieved, that's like permanent. That, that's his overarching feeling. So he's looking at his enemies those who are planning his death already, plotting with people they would never even associate with to kill him. And how does Jesus feel? He's grieved in his heart over their hardness of hearts. I mean, it's incredible. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus, who even when we're enemies of God, he loves us. Even when we want nothing to do with him, he loves us. This is Jesus. Well, the Pharisees can't stand him. They want him gone. Jesus, he does what he does. He heals the man. And let me tell you something. When your traditions, when your systems, when your boxes, when all of your regulations are more important than somebody's health, your boxes are messed up, right? I mean, it's all wrong. And we think, man, haven't we come so far as a culture? I mean, we would never do stuff like that. We got, we got the same issue, don't we? We got all kinds of, hey, we got these rights. So, you know, if unborn babies get hurt, you know, we got our rights. We got these boxes. We got to check this. When our systems and our boxes and all of our traditions, when they become more important than someone's health, we've got the whole thing messed up. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. So you guys are so hypocritical. You think you're so good because you've got all these regulations. And listen, the only thing regulations can do at their best is be protective. And they can do that, right? Regulations can be protective. God put in place regulations through the Mosaic Law, certain regulations to protect his people. These are good regulations. Well, I'm thankful for regulations in this country, right? The FDA, specifically, I'm thankful that we have like labels on our food and hey, this is safe, you can eat this. You do a little research, you go back to the 1800s. I mean, it was like the Wild West in America. You could claim anything you wanted on any kind of food product. Oh, this will cure this, this will do this, whatever. And people were eating all kinds of stuff and they were getting all kinds of diseases because there were no regulations. So yes, regulations can be protective. Uh, but here's the thing, only a relationship with Jesus is always productive. Regulations can be protective, but a relationship with Jesus is always productive. A relationship with Jesus always produces joy. A relationship with Jesus always produces hope. A relationship with Jesus always produces love. A relationship with Jesus always produces disciple making. 
a relationship with Jesus always produces fruit, right? You can never find anyone in scripture that a relationship with Jesus does not produce something. This always happens in the life of a Christian. But the religious people of Jesus' day, they had plenty of regulations, and that did protect them from certain things, but they missed the relationship, and they missed the productivity that, came, that comes from a relationship with Jesus. See, with regulations, you can contain things. Right? You can make things fit into a certain box. This isn't getting out. This can stay in. You can contain things with regulations. Relationships, they're always dynamic, aren't they? You, you never know how a relationship is going to turn and, and where it's going to go through the course of life. Relationships are dynamic, and especially so with a relationship with Jesus, because he empowers. He empowers his people for action. And that, that is something about Jesus, isn't it? The productivity that he comes with. There's something about this joy in all circumstances. There's something about this love for the lowly, this grief over enemies. There's something about Jesus. And the people cannot be kept from him. They're always pressing in. The masses love him. They want more of him. And so we see that too. He heals, and then what happens? All the crowds, they're, heal, they're hearing about his healings. They're drawn to his teaching. They're pressing in. They want more of Jesus. And Jesus could just relish in it and do it all himself, but what does he want to do? He wants to empower others to do the work of ministry. He actually came to empower us, not just for all, everything for himself. He came to empower his people and so he gets in a boat, he crosses the lake, he goes up on a mountainside, and he holds this commissioning service. And it, it, it had to have been some kind of commissioning, commissioning service. He calls these 12 disciples, he calls them apostles. And by the way, four times in scripture, you have a list of all 12 disciples. In all four of those lists, Peter is always listed first. Judas is always listed last. And in all four of those lists, the disciples are always broken up into three groups of four. So, and it almost seems like the first list is kind of like the closest group. And then the second list, we know not quite as much as the first list, but definitely more than the third list. And there's the third list. And we don't really know much about those disciples, except for Judas. And what we know about him is really bad. So that's kind of the way that works. And so he's got these groups... It almost seems like Jesus really loves impact groups, doesn't it? I mean, it almost seems like, hey, this works. This is good. Anyway, that's not Mark's point. Uh, what Mark is pointing out is that, hey, with all these people coming to Jesus, with Jesus' popularity on the rise, and there's this, this excitement among the masses about what Jesus is doing and his teaching and his healing and all this, that he was going to give this away that he was gonna empower others, that he was gonna teach others how to serve. And the strange thing is, he empowers guys who we look at and think, man, good luck with them. I mean, what are you gonna do with these guys? This is tough. I mean, we, we've talked about it, these fishermen, these tax collectors, these outcasts. He puts a zealot in there, you know, the guy all fired up about government, all kinds of, like, what are you going to do with them? These are not the people that you start a religious movement with. It's almost like you want to tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, I mean, these 12, 
you're going to have to start all over. You're going to be picking a new 12 in six months. I mean, this is not going to go well. But Jesus, he said, no, all I need are people who say yes. That's really all they've done. They've just said yes. I'll follow. I'll leave my nets. I'll leave my business. I'll leave the tax collector's booth. I'll follow you. This is all they've said, yes. But they've said yes. And so Jesus empowers them, and he's going to commission them to preach, right, to preach. And sometimes, you know, we get the idea that preaching is like a guy standing up on a stage and just like preaching a sermon, you know, from this, like, right, I'm doing right now. Like, that, that's what we get the idea of preaching. But it's so much more than that. I mean, yes, that is, but there's so much more than that. Preaching is simply proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We're all called to do that. I should be doing that much more than just on a Sunday morning, right? We're all called to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now, here's another thing about preaching. You can't do it in a vacuum, right? I mean, you can't preach unless you actually know something, right? Unless you actually know Jesus, it's really hard to talk about him. And how do we know him? Well, Jesus reveals himself to us through his word, primarily. And so, Paul, he tells Titus, he tells Timothy, preach the word. This is what you preach. And how, how are you able to preach the word unless you know it? And so you got to study it. You got to study God's word. It's not just enough to read it. You got to study it. You got to know it. And then, hey, then you have something to say. You know, the Bible is the best selling book of all time, okay? Year after year after year, the Bible continues to outsell any other book. And yet, we live in a time where biblical literacy is on the decline. And you see that in churches all over our country because you don't have expositional preaching, right? And, and what I mean by that is just simply going through the text. I'm just gonna preach the word to you. Instead, what do you have? Well, we'll do this text this week and this text this week and this text this week and this text. And then what is the... Uh, person preaching primarily saying well I might read a passage but then it's like my thoughts and man if I can do this really emotional thing get people fired up you know that'll be really good and that's what it's devolved to why well I think it's because a lot of pastors they don't actually know God's word well enough to preach it and a lot of congregations they don't demand it they don't crave it they don't want it they don't even know what it is so preach however you want to preach and we'll, we'll just call it good because I don't even know the difference. But in order to know him, in order to have something to say, you need to understand the scripture. You need to understand how it works together, how it flows, how it points to Jesus. And so you must be a learner. You be a disciple by being a learner. But it's not simply a learner. It doesn't stop at the intellectual. The disciples did actually preach. They did actually proclaim the good news of Jesus. And as you read through the New Testament, it is incredible how many times they point back to the Old Testament. They do it all the time. Jesus himself did it. I think that's where they learned it, right? Because Jesus, he pointed to the Old Testament. This is how I'm fulfilling this. This is how I'm fulfilling. This is how you can recognize me as the Messiah. This is how you can know who I am. And so that pattern is then modeled by the apostles, they preach. They preach the Old Testament. They point to Jesus. And they do that because they're a learner, but they're also doing it. Jesus, he also commissions them to uh, have the authority to cast out demons. 
And so you have these guys, they're meeting all kinds of needs, right? They're meeting physical needs. They're meeting spiritual needs. They're meeting emotional needs. They're meeting intellectual needs. They're meeting all kinds of needs. If you want to be a disciple, yes, you must be a learner, but you also must be a doer. You be a disciple by being a learner and a doer. Disciples just don't sit around. I mean, we've talked about it immediately, immediately, immediately. I mean, there's all kinds of action-packedness to Mark's gospel. And you look at these guys, and they are active. Disciples are active people. They're on the move. They're interacting with people. They don't just huddle up in a religious country club or something and make things safe. No, they're out there with the masses. They're, they're meeting people. They're meeting needs. They're serving. This is normative of a follower of Christ. Why? Because this is what he empowers us to do. Jesus empowers his people for action. And when you see this kind of action, the crowds are drawn to that because there's something so winsome about it, something so different, living your life for others. Yeah, I mean, just nobody does that. But this is the orientation of the life of a follower of Christ. It's for others. <laughs> well, after this great commissioning service, I'm sure that it was, Jesus and his disciples, they go home to that borrowed home in Capernaum. People are again crowding in, right? You have the idea that Jesus' door is always open. Anyone is always welcome in this home. And so they are, they're just coming in. So much so they can't even eat. It's not like they can even reach down and grab food and lift it back up to their mouth. They're like that pressed in to each other. I mean, this is crowd. People are coming, they're drawn to Jesus. There is something about him. And Jesus' family is there. And they can't contain him either. Just like the Pharisees want to contain Jesus, Jesus' family wants to contain Jesus. I want you to see this. Let's check out the end of chapter 3, verses 21 through 35. Mark writes, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whoever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat, at, who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know, you read chapter 3, and it almost feels like Jesus goes out of his way to make things harder, doesn't it? I mean, he, he has to heal on the Sabbath, this guy. He could have picked any other day. He chooses the Sabbath. And now... His parent, his mom comes, his brothers come. They come to see Jesus, come to get him. And Jesus, he could have said a bunch of different stuff here, right? I mean, word comes, hey, your, your mom and brothers are here. 
And Jesus could have said, oh, that's great. I'm so excited to see them. He said, you know, I love my mom. It's going to be so good to talk to her. He could have said, you know, I'm, this meeting is really important. Can you just tell them to wait just a little bit? I'll, I'll see them in a moment. I mean, he could have said a bunch of stuff, right? I mean, why did he have to drop the hammer like this? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? I mean, he's just dropping it. If this was anybody else, right? If this wasn't Jesus, seriously, if this were anybody else, what would we do? We'd go up to him, we'd put our arm around him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, listen, uh, you can make things just way easier, okay, Jesus? Just like, you can massage this message just a little bit. Maybe you could say like, hey, I love my mom. She's such a great lady, but you know, right now I'm working on building up a spiritual family. I mean, you, you can message this. You, you, don't, you don't have to just like drop the hammer and hurt feelings and all the stuff that you're doing. But Jesus, he was dropping the hammer. Why? Because he's telling his family and he's alerting everyone else that he's not going to be contained by them. Jesus was not going to be contained by what his family could understand. He's not going to be limited by what they could figure out. And so he drops the hammer so that everyone knows hey, I'm not containable. I, I, I'm not just going to be limited like this. And you know what's happening in his family, don't you? I mean, you know, you know the questions that they're asking because, you know, nothing seems to break up a family like success. You know, there's something about it when somebody just makes it like really big in the family that like that success just kind of can have this wedge that kind of tears the family apart a little bit. You know, because here comes the family gathering and, Oh man, look at, look at Mr. Smarty Pants, thinks he's made it big, that fancy car he's got. Oh yeah, we hear all about these stories. And you know, his family was hearing about his stories. You know, people would have been talking, people would have been going to Jesus' family. Hey, did you hear how Jesus healed this person? Did you hear the parties he's going to? Did you hear the things he's saying to the Pharisees? Man, Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did this. And they're hearing all this. And you know that one of the brothers goes to the other brothers and to his mom and says, come on now, we know Jesus. He, he, he lived in this house. We've been around him our whole lives. This, this is not right. Something is happening. We need to help Jesus. And that's what they're saying, right? Verse 21, he's out of his mind. Something's at, something's wrong with Jesus. We need to go rescue Jesus. We need to help him out. He's really stirring things up. He's offending all kinds of powers that be. We need to help Jesus because he is out of his mind. This is what they're saying. This is what they're thinking. And so they come and they rush over. Let's help Jesus. Jesus really needs our help. And they can't even get inside. They can't even get in the house. I mean, there's so many people crowded in. And you can imagine how it goes, right? It's almost like a, a massive game of telephone. Like, well, who are you? Why are you so desperate to get in there? Well, I'm his mom. Oh, you're his mom? Yeah, well, you want to see him? Yeah, I want to see him. That's my son. All right, hey, tell Jesus his mom and brothers are here. 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 Brothers are here. Word finally makes it to Jesus. And Jesus drops the hammer. Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Man, that's tough, isn't it? That's rough. But meanwhile, what's going on outside the house, they're outside the house, and all this is put up against with what's going on inside the house. And inside the house, Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders. 
Oh, there's all kinds of people crowded in, but he's speaking specifically to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. And they're saying, man, Jesus is doing all this stuff because he's empowered by Satan. I mean, he's demonically powered, and that's how he's doing all this. And Jesus is saying, come on, really? I mean, just think about this for a moment. Just just use your brains here. If I'm empowered by Satan, and I'm coming, and I'm like driving out demons, and I'm casting out satanic forces, what sense does that make? Because I'd be dividing my efforts. The demons would be doing the very thing that I'd want them to do if I'm empowered by Satan. That makes no sense. And that kind of strategy, it's doomed to fail. And then he takes it a step further. Say, if you come in to rob a house, to plunder a house, and there's a strong man in the house, if you're going to get all the stuff, first thing you got to do is tie up and bound the strong man. And what he's saying is, don't you see what I'm doing? I'm binding up the strong man. I'm I'm binding up Satan. I'm binding up his demons. I'm casting them out because I have come to give life to this place. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I get them out. And they have a real hard time with this. And they, no, you're doing this. It's all demonic. And then Jesus, he makes this statement, you know, there's a certain sin that's an eternal sin and you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, boom, it's all over. You know? And ever since Jesus said that, people have been trying to figure out, man, what is that eternal sin? What is this unpardonable? Have I done it? I don't want to do it. Have, you know, what, Maybe I did. And they've been trying to figure this thing out. Listen, as long as you reject Christ and you attribute the power of God to anything other than God, That is blasphemy. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and is unpardonable as long as you refuse to repent. It's unpardonable as long as you refuse to repent. God is never just going to look the other way and say, you know what? You've had a hard life. You know what? You've been exposed to a lot of really bad teaching. You know, all all this this tough, you know, so I'm just going to kind of look the other way and you're going to be in. No, it's unpardonable. Pardonable when you fail to acknowledge God as God, Jesus is Lord. It's unpardonable. This uh, word here, unpardonable, it actually, or or, um, is blasphemy, I should say. This word blasphemy, it actually refers to a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of rejecting Jesus, a lifestyle of not acknowledging him for who he is. But God also, and God will never pardon that. But Jesus also says in John uh, 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So bringing things back to Jesus' family, okay? They're outside. The people inside, they're rejecting him. They want nothing to do with him. They, They just want Jesus gone. Jesus makes this statement. You know who my family is? You know who my mom is? You know who my brothers are? You know who my sisters are? They're the people who do my will. What's the will of God in this scenario? Jesus is making this, what is it? Was to receive him. That they haven't. What what happens in a healthy family? Well, you receive each other, right? You greet one another. There's excitement to be around the family. That's what happens in a healthy family. And it goes beyond that. You rejoice over one another, right? There's excitement. It's good. It generally is good to, to see one another. There's a, there's a good emotion that's, that's evoked. 
So there's this rejoicing. And then in a healthy family, what happens? You begin to resemble one another, don't you? It's like other people will say, oh, I can tell you're part of that family. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew it. Just the way you act, your mannerisms, your body movements, your language, all these things, your passion. I can tell you, you're, you're definitely part of that family. Now, the Pharisees, they're not receiving Jesus, right? They're running from him. Man, we got to get him gone. We got to do our own thing. They're not rejoicing over Jesus. They're rejecting him. And they certainly don't want to resemble him, right? They want to do their own thing. And the funny thing, his family on the outside, it's the same thing. They're not receiving Jesus for who he is. They're saying, we need to help him out. He's lost his mind. We got to change some things. They're not rejoicing over him. They're saying, oh, he needs to be fixed. And they're not resembling him. They're saying, no, he, need, he needs to change his ways. And Jesus is saying, no, a healthy family, here's what happens. In a healthy family, a healthy family receives, rejoices, and resembles one another. Jesus says, that's how I know you're mine. That's how I know you're part of my family. You receive me. You rejoice over me. You begin to resemble me. That's my family. Are you familiar with those DNA tests? You know, the genetic testing, the uh, 23andMe and Ancestry.com and those kind of things? Uh, I was reading about them this week, and it was actually incredible to learn that there's a lot of cases, a lot of families, they've taken these tests, and then they've discovered things about their family, and it's ripped the whole family apart when they discover these things. I was reading about two sisters, okay? They, they take this test, and after they take the test, it comes back that they have different dads. They thought this whole time they had the same dad. I mean, can you imagine the awkwardness of like that Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, it had to have been pretty strange. And so they, they feel just this tension between one another. And now they're mom, mad at their mom and dad. They feel like they've been lied to their whole lives. And it causes all this, it actually broke the whole family apart. They were, they were happy before they took the test. They take the test, now they're broken apart. I was reading about other families, and they find like this long-lost son or daughter, brother or sister, and then, well, after they find this person, at first, there's this initial rejoicing. Oh, it's so excited. And they find the person. And this person, they've made a series just of poor choices in their life. Their life has just been full of tragedy and heartache and all this stuff. And then it's all brought into this family. And then some members of the family are like, we didn't even know this person a month ago. Like, why are we bringing all this? Why do we have to deal with all this baggage now? And other people are in the family are like, no, no, we got to help them out. They really are. You know, they're blood. Come on, let's, let's join in and rally together. And it's just ripped families apart. Tells us a little bit about what true family is, doesn't it? True family receives one another, rejoices over each other, begins to resemble each other. And in the church family, it's all around Jesus. We receive each other because we recognize that Jesus receives us. We rejoice over one another because we know that Jesus rejoices over all of us. And we resemble one another because ultimately we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We're resembling more and more Jesus. And so this is what happens in a healthy family. You know, when I was growing up and be in the church world some, I'd I'd, I'd hear people in the church say, brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. 
And I got to tell you, I always thought it was so weird, right? I just thought it was strange. Thought, man, that's, some, that's weird language right there because when I get home and I got to clean my bedroom and I got to bathe the dog and I got to take out the trash, all these brothers and sisters are always absent. You know, they never help me with any of my chores. I mean, what kind of family is this? You know, I used to thought it was some corny church language, you know? I mean, this is what we say at church, you know, it makes us feel good or whatever, but this is so hokey. Well, then I came to a passage like this, and I began to do a little research and to understand what this phrase really meant and how important it was, especially in the early church. Because in the early church, there would be a meeting not unlike this one, and someone would come, and they would say, I've decided to follow Jesus. And now my family's disowned me. My mom won't speak to me. My brothers and sisters want nothing to do with me. My, my dad says I've dishonored the family and I'm dead to them and he wants to harm me. I've got nowhere to go. And you know what the church would do? Brother, sister, you have family here. We'll provide a place for you to stay. We'll provide food for you to eat because you're part of the family. And the family that Jesus empowers, man, it's uncontainable family. It's an ever-growing, ever-multiplying family. You know, when Jesus came on the scene, how many Christians were there when he showed up? Zero, right? Zero. No Christians when Jesus shows up. By about the year 250 AD, throughout the Roman Empire, over half the Roman Empire are following Jesus. That's a multiplying family. That's an empowered family. That's an uncontainable family. This is the type of family that Jesus empowers. He empowers a family like that. And we get to be a part of it. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you have adopted us into your family. And God, all that that means. God, forgive us for when we shrink back, we fall back, we fail to see that, God, the power that you empower us with is an uncontainable power, a power that empowers us to, to preach your good news, to meet people's needs, and to show that there's so much productivity, that a life in following you produces love, joy, hope, disciple-making, so much more. God, help us to realize that in this church so that we would resemble you well. We recognize we need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Central, I want to let you know that um, you remember Jeremy and Carissa Lynn, missionaries to Ethiopia, who spent a month with us. Uh, we had a generous uh, member of the congregation say, hey, you know, they're, they're trying to raise these blocks of $2,500 for their uh, operation uh, permanent light there in the capital city of Ethiopia. And so one of our members said, hey, I'll do matching. I'll, I'll do one, and the rest of the church can chip in, we'll do another. Well, I just want to report to you, we haven't even really been emphasizing this, but you guys and your generosity just way exceeded that, okay? I mean, we're, we're supporting well over two. It's, it's more like two and a half. I mean, it's, it was a, a very generous donation that we're able to make to them and their ministry efforts there in Ethiopia. And as I was texting and even calling and talking with Jeremy this week, I mean, they are just blown away by the generosity of Central. And even more than that, they said, you know, it was just so life-giving to spend the month with you. 
So thank you for the way that you received them, rejoiced over them, and how we do resemble each other even when they're over in Africa and we're here. It is exciting to see. Uh, you know, and one of the ways that we get to kind of lock arms and do that here in our, in our own backyard is through Central Care. So I did want to remind you again, if you haven't already, please sign up and get out there with us. We're going to have a great time just showing our community that we love our city. In the meantime, this week, share Jesus, impact people. Have a great week. We love you, Central.